you've got to figure out what can you actually do that will help this student, this kid figure out where they want to go and then get them there. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders. We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so excited to have my next guest here. We have Kate Eberly Walker, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Presence Learning. We'll talk a little bit more about her company and and how just everything that she's doing around online special education, teletherapy for K through 12 schools. I'm so interested in this topic. Uh, But Kate also recently wrote a book that is so incredible. It's called The Good Boss, Nine Ways Every Manager Can Support Women at Work. And it is just an incredible book. It came out in March of this year. Um, another pandemic book that it was, uh, well, I guess yours, people were coming out of the pandemic, but um, definitely have my own appreciation for that whole period of time. That was a first for so many of us, a first book, a first time in launching during a pandemic. So we did it. We made it through for sure. So, uh, and Kate has also been named a champion of equity by the American Consortium for Equity in Education and named top 25 women in PE-backed software companies 2020, an amazing, amazing individual. And Kate welcomes Excited to have you here. Thanks, Kara. Thank you for having me. Very excited. So tell me a little bit more about uh, sort of who was early Kate uh, way back when? I mean, did you know that you were going to be running this incredible company, but also just overall (laughs) what you wanted to do? So, well, I think the key, the key thing to know about early Kate is that I'm a middle child. So, and, and so, you know, I think middle children are very obsessed with birth order and, you know, we see things in reference to what someone else is getting. So, you know, I was always looking at, you know, what my little sister was getting, what my older brother was getting and uh, looking for, you know, sort of my angle in to, you know, to, to have impact on the family. And so I think that drove me. I wouldn't say that I knew that I would end up one day running something, but I was always trying to figure out like, well, what's, what's my way to actually matter here and actually have an impact. And, um, that, that, that came out in probably misguided ways when I was younger. There's this, there's this story that my family loves to tell about when we were young. So we'd go visit my grandmother every summer, me my brother, my sister, and one other cousin, another girl. And my grandma would get these little gifts for us and it would rotate who got like first pick on the gifts. And so ah. the summer that it was my pick, the four gifts, they were coloring books. And you know, so there was one for a boy because of my brother and three girl ones. So it was like Care Bears, Barbie, Transformers, and um, you know, strawberry shortcake. And so I got my first pick and I grabbed the Transformers 
coloring book. And everyone kind of freaked out and was like, get give that to your brother. That's not for you, Katie. I was Katie back then. And, uh, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Cause I thought I had the first choice. Um, and you know, I just very stubbornly felt like, well, if, if I'm going to make my first pick count for anything, it has to be the one that has, you know, this, this value. So that was, that was kind of how I made my way through younger life was trying to figure out like what had value to other people. Fortunately, I, you know, I, I grew up a little bit along the way and realized that uh, there were, there were ways to create value that didn't come at the expense of others. That's <laughs> I adapted as, as I got older. I, I understand the middle middle kid. I'm not a middle kid. I'm the youngest of five, but I'm married to a middle kid who ah. uh, is very aware of and and tells uh, I have four children uh, with him, and uh, he's constantly talking about the birth order. And you are yeah. one thousand percent right. It's, right. Well, it's, you know, uh, more middle children like to like to remind you that there are that more middle children become CEOs. Them. Oh, interesting. Very, yeah. very, very <laughs> interesting. Well, he is, as he, uh, he identifies as a struggling, um, a lawyer that didn't really want to be a lawyer. So then he uh, turned chief operating officer. So he's uh, definitely had some different gigs, but it all goes yeah. back to this middle kid that, you know, trying to figure out exactly what he's supposed to be doing and, right. and mm-hmm. uh, sticking up for himself along the yes. way. <laughs> anyway, it's so funny. And so one of the roles, I guess, that that I, well, a few different roles, even before starting um, your, where you are today, is you were the CEO of the Princeton Review. Yes. I mean, yes. crazy. So tell me a little bit about that journey. Yeah. So I, I worked a lot of my earlier career in college admissions and test prep. Actually, my, my first big job out of business school was with Kaplan. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
no English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is Super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of The Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. So I'm one of the few people to have, um, you know, ultimately had career success at these two great rivals, Kaplan and Princeton Review. Um, But I I worked at Kaplan for, for nearly a decade on M&A, so 
buying education companies. I've bought over 70 different education companies over my years at Kaplan. And you really studied the industry and, you know, over those years formed stronger and stronger opinions, I'd say, about what makes for a good business in education Hmm. and what kind of a business, you know, do I believe in and want to run? So, so it, it got to, got to a point for me where, I was no longer satisfied being the deal person, you know, putting things together and, and envisioning plans for others to go execute. I wanted to go go do it and go try it. And I had this incredible opportunity to go work for IAC, Barry Diller's company. Mm-hmm. They had bought Tutor.com and were thinking about a consumer education online play mm-hmm. and what they wanted to build, how they wanted to build it. And they, and they wanted somebody that had experience in the industry. So they brought me onto their team and we envisioned this, this consumer offering built off of the, the online on-demand concept of tutor.com, um, but expanding into other areas of, of college admissions and college advice. And we thought, what, what better brand to do that with than the Princeton Review, which is so storied and so trusted. Uh, so we bought it. And that that was my last foray into M&A was, was buying Princeton Review. And then I got to go over to the management team and be part of of building it out and executing against our plan. I was CFO for the first year uh, running the integration, and then I became CEO. That's wild. And what did you learn? What was kind of the core thing across all of those companies in education? What were you seeing? I mean, I, I guess essentially how many years was this like? This was like 15 years. Yeah, 15 yeah. years. And so did you see this like trend amongst all of these um, I, I guess there, there's a pool of students, right, that are yeah. at different levels. And what was yeah. kind of the core thing that you were seeing? Well, you know, for education, it's it's tough to run a great education company because you are held responsible for this this outcome. I mean, you're you know you you're not you're not just you know giving them a book or you know offering them this course. They're counting on you to help them get somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I think. The big thing about about education, especially college admissions, is you've got to figure out what can you actually do that will help this student, this kid, figure out where they want to go and then get them there. And um, you're gonna, you know, count on them to do a lot of work in the process as well, right? It's you're you're making a promise that that as a company you can't fully keep on your own. You need the buy-in, you need the belief, you need the work from the student. So so it all comes together in a way that you know I think the companies that do well in that space are the ones that are that are clear about expectations. They don't overpromise. There's there's a lot that there's a lot of gaming in the space that can happen about promising these big test score improvements or, you know, hundred percent admission to Harvard kinds of things. And, um, you know, I learned over all those years, a couple of things. One is that, uh, Harvard, yeah, Harvard or any given school, it shouldn't be the end goal for every Mm -hmm. kid. It's, it's really about finding the right fit. And then, um, that, you know, you, you can't, you, you can't promise numbers. You've got to promise success and that you'll help the, help each child figure out what that is for them. So it's an interesting space to be in. You've got to really take responsibility for, for this, this phase of life and where somebody gets to education 
you know, education opens up everything for, for a child. Yeah, absolutely. And then before we get into your book, I want to talk about your company, Presence Learning. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, you're you're really focused in on the special education side of the world. I mean, did you feel like you learned and became really passionate about that through what you were seeing in, in these previous roles? I was so lucky to find Presence Learning. So I, I came into Presence Learning when the company was about 10 years old and uh, the the investors and the founder were looking, looking to bring in an outside CEO to help mm-hmm. the company scale further. And um, I... You know, I, I wasn't that aware of the company yeah. when I first started talking to them. I had, I, I'd been having, you know, coffee with an investor friend, as you do. We'd, we'd sold Princeton Review and I was, you know, off to find my next CEO gig. And I was talking to an investor who who had a lot of holdings in the education space. And he said, well, describe your ideal company to me. Like, what, what would you ideal, if you could invent the company you're going to run next, what would it be? And I said, you know, I really loved our business model at tutor.com, the idea of using technology to make a really important human service accessible to more kids and affordable for more kids. And, you know, that that was what we'd done at tutor.com. We weren't taking the human element out of the education. We were connecting a student to a live tutor, a live teacher. And I loved that. And I loved how, how we were making that more accessible for kids in the moments when they needed it. So, you know, I, I started talking about that and saying, you know, I'd love to find another company that does that too. Maybe earlier stage, you know, Princeton Review is a more mature company. I'd love to, to, you know, come in somewhere that really needs me and a team to grow it and bring it to the next level where we can really impact what this company will become. And if it could be in a part of education that's even more meaningful than helping academically successful kids gain admission to college, that that would be the icing on the cake. And the investor said, you know, oh my God, we have this company in our portfolio and they're just launching a search to bring in an outside CEO. You have to meet them. And that was Presence Learning. So I got to know it through that and, and came into the company that way. And now I'm two and a half years into it. And uh, I had no idea how much I needed to learn about the special education part of the market. I mean, for my for myself, it's actually personally changed my life. I realized once I started spending time with our clinicians, I started recognizing that they could help me with a speech challenge my own daughter had been having that I'd been asking pediatricians and teachers about for years. And, you know, it was sort of minimized as something not to worry about. And within months of having gone to the team at Presence Learning, I had her evaluated, had therapy recommended and came to appreciate what it is that speech pathologists do and can do for, for our kids. So it's become a very personally meaningful thing that I, you know, I feel so lucky to have gotten introduced to them. Well, they were lucky to find you too, but obviously, I mean, I, I always feel like every point of our journey is kind of for a reason, right? And and mm-hmm. that clearly is uh, what you're describing. So how, I mean, talk to us a little bit about presence learning for those of, for those people who aren't familiar. How does the system work? 
Yep. So, so we are a teletherapy platform and software provider for special education services. So, so we have uh, a team of about 1,600 therapists. We have speech pathologists, occupational therapists, and school psychologists and social workers. And, uh, and so our team helps schools cover the therapy work and the evaluation work that they need to get done, but can't do because they don't have enough people mm-hmm. on staff. So, so you know, the way special education works in, in our public education system is it's, it's federally mandated. So if a child is determined to have a disability that, that requires therapy, the school has to provide it to that student, to that family free of charge. And they, they want to, they try to, but it's incredibly difficult to recruit these clinicians to come work every day in the school district. It's a hard job. It's really, I mean, it's emotionally taxing. It's physically taxing. It's long hours, heavy caseloads, a lot of driving around. And so uh, a lot of the therapists will do it for, you know, maybe a few years earlier in their career, but then they might go to private practice right. or go work in a clinic. So, so Presence Learning came along and said, you know, we, we think we could keep more of these clinicians working with public education students if we offered them a way to work remotely with more flexibility to, to do their work from home. Um, it's, you know, not, not coincidentally, this is a very, very female working population. So 97% of speech pathologists are women. And many of them at the point where they start their own families decide that they, you know, they can't sustain the the hours and the structure of full-time on-site work at a school, but they, they love working with these kids and they want to continue. So, so over 80% of our clinicians who work with us online are working mothers of school-aged children and they find their way to us and they get to keep on, you know, using, using their, their training and their license and working with these kids in public education, but they can do it on their terms and set their hours. So, um, so, you know, to us, we're, we're as much about, you know, serving these women and providing them with a career path as, as we are about supporting these kids and, and getting them the services. So we do, we do a double good thing. That's amazing. And so how did that change? I mean, over uh, during COVID, I mean. Oh, everything changed. Everything changed. Yeah. Um, I think, well, the biggest change was, was just awareness of teletherapy and acceptance of it. So, you know, we went from being something that, you know, we worked with a lot of very rural districts uh, who, you know, just couldn't hire these clinicians uh, or with a lot of very concentrated urban districts, same thing, had a hard time hiring, retaining, you know, we were helping them solve their problems and, and their shortages. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, we went to having 100% of, of districts were needing to figure out how to do some of their work online. They were closed for some period of time. And so teletherapy suddenly became a very you know, relevant mass solution. And so for us as a company, it changed actually our offerings. So we started, you know, we recognized at some point in that spring or really the winter of 2020 that the, you know, the thing that we could do to help wasn't necessarily going to be to sell more of our services you know, to go, to keep going around to school districts saying, send us your case, your caseload overloads, send us your evaluations and our team will do them. They, they had a different problem to solve. All of a sudden they had all of these 
all of their staff were at home, their kids were at home, they had the established therapy relationships, they just needed to connect with their kids. And so we started doing professional development. We started training the school-based staff on, you know, how do you adapt your on-site practice to an online world? How do you connect with kids? How do you build rapport through the screen, through technology? So we started doing training. We called it Teletherapy 101. You know, we said, okay, we've spent a decade figuring out how to do this well. Let's teach people who are working in these schools who now are being forced to do it, how to do it well. And then we started licensing our our therapy platform, our software, so that they would have a tool that had, you know, all of the therapy activities and content and multi-screen views and games and assessments so that they'd have everything that they needed to, to be able to deliver the therapy. So we added that whole new business line to, to our company in the past year, and we've grown like crazy. That's awesome. I bet there were people even before the pandemic who were saying, I don't know if I want to do it this way. We want a live person. And then once you actually have to do it, um, it it just totally changes. And then obviously the therapists, right, who are, you know, you probably had a lot of people who felt a lot more comfortable. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them, yeah, they didn't know if it could be done that well or how it would feel to work that way. And they got to experience it. The biggest shift was with parents. And I, this was true in online tutoring, online test preparation, all of that as well. The, when parents see how effective something can be online and, and they actually, parents get to see it in a way they get to actually, you know, witness their child interacting with this professional. It's, it, it tends to be the parents that drive the way of adoption. And I think that definitely happened for special education therapy over this past year. You had these parents watching these interactions and seeing how their children engaged. And then, and and now coming into the next year, we see them, you know, asking for it and requesting it. So I I think it'll really change the way that, that uh, this part of education is thought about in terms of online. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I, I have a friend who is a a sixth grade teacher in public school in San Francisco and hearing her stories of, uh, she was sharing with me a story about how the kids don't actually have to turn on their video when they're in the classroom online. And, and uh, you know, they didn't go back to school, I guess, this whole year. And uh, yeah. so they were doing it all virtually. And then kids would actually get bullied if they turned their video on. And I know, which is just heartbreaking. And she said that the kids who actually, you know, had challenges, special education challenges, I mean, it was, it was just, you know, absolutely heartbreaking. So I think that there's definitely, you know, this need where people can interact, right, in, in these programs and figure out, you know, how do you push through those in case, you know, God forbid, we have to do this again, right? And it's, it's definitely... Thank goodness that you guys are are doing what you're doing. So, okay, so the book totally different. I mean, maybe yes. maybe there's <laughs> some crossovers in there as well. I'm sure just on your journey, but the new book came out, which I mentioned is so good. It's called The Good Boss, and uh, subtitle: Nine Ways Every Manager Can Support Women at Work. But talk to me about the Good Boss. What made you think about writing this book? 
So I wrote this book for for men, for male managers. So I found once, especially once I became a CEO, talking to my peers, and you know, let's let's be honest, but most of our peer CEOs are men. They would they'd come to me asking for advice when they you know about the women who worked for mm-hmm. them, about you know what should I do? I want to do the right thing. Should I say this? Should I not say this? You know, lots of, lots of asks for advice from kind of my, my male CEO friends. And I, when I heard myself giving advice back, it just, it felt like what I was telling them was just, it was very practical and it was just rooted in trying to give them more perspective in the real experience that women have in the workplace. There's so, and it struck me, there's so much to gain by, giving managers a, a real clear understanding of, you know, this is how women experience the workplace and this is how it shows up in the data. And so here's what you can do. Here's what you could say. Here's what you shouldn't say. Um, here's what you can change just in your day-to-day interactions with the women who work for you. Even if you're a manager of one person, you know, it doesn't have to be only CEOs, doesn't have to be only HR leaders who are setting policies and, and changing things from the top. Anyone who has responsibility as a manager for for a woman on their team can, you know, benefit from just listening and, and gaining that perspective of what's the workplace like for her. So I started I started trying to write it out. I said, you know, this this is a book that that I know how to write. You know, I've I've lived it myself. I've I've worked my way up and and really learned along the way how different it can be when you have a manager who's setting the right tone for you. You know, and I and I reflected upon those managers for me and, and what they did and, you know, how, you know, I, I really truly wouldn't be where I am if I hadn't, you know, come upon some really incredible bosses along the way. And so I, I wanted to try to take what they did for me and what other women told me about with their great bosses and, and turn it into, you know, as much of a formula as we could for for what everybody could do to create a more, more equalized workplace. So what were, just name a couple of examples. I mean, what, what did you see as kind of the core thing that you, you know, felt was like number one? I mean, how do you be the most supportive boss in this situation? And honestly, like, I think your book, definitely, it sounds like you wrote it really for so many men that had asked you, but I think it's, it's great for both mm-hmm. men and women. I mean, it, it, because I think women sometimes feel like they're also watching their career and, and they're, you know, tackling mm-hmm. things as well. How do you be, how do you continue to be supportive to other women in the environment as well, but also be yeah. fair to men too. I think like that's another yeah. whole topic that if you're a female leader is actually making sure that we're not just supporting the women in the group, but also the, the guys as well. So Exactly. I I think about that a lot as a leader for sure. Yes. So, well, okay. So one, one core principle that I think is important for everybody, bosses and employees, men and women is to, you know, to be, be an authentic person in the workplace, to show who you are um, and to be interested in who other people are. And, you know, I, I felt like that, I mean, that might sound simple, it might sound obvious, but, you know, a lot of times in workplace context, people get hung up on being careful, being professional, not crossing lines. And I think that it can be to a detriment if you aren't, you know, 
really open and making employees feel like they can be who they are and 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 talk about what they care about outside of work. I mean, why you know why why does anybody want to come to work every day if they don't feel like, you know, they're really being themselves, if they don't feel like they like the people that they work with? That's when when someone asks me for advice about, you know, how do I know I'm interviewing for a job or I have a job offer, how do I know if this will be a good boss for me? I always start with, well, did you like them? Did you enjoy yourself in the interview, right? And, you know, because if you can't have a fun conversation where you're each engaging and listening to each other, you know, chances are that's that's not going to be a productive working relationship. You know, your boss should care about what you have to say and should be listening to you. So, um, and then as a boss, I think that, you know, you do have to extend yourself as, as much as you're willing. You know, one thing I, I talk about a lot is I, I believe in, sharing on social media and inviting every, you know, all of my employees to follow me. I don't, I don't force it on them. I don't, you know, I don't invite them to be my Facebook friend. I, I let them know that, you know, they're welcome to follow me and that I share about my life. And many of them do, and they invite me to follow them. And, you know, what you can learn about somebody on Instagram, you know, it, it shows you what they care about and it shows them what you do. It gives you more connecting points. And, that that's an area I really advocate for where I think that um, leaders can do more and put themselves out there more um, generationally. I think that some of, you know, some of us were maybe came, came of age in a different time where we were actually taught not to, you know, that, you know, you should draw lines and, and you shouldn't be on social media. You shouldn't connect with your employees, but um, surveys of the next generation of workers shows they definitely don't feel that way. Actually 80% of, um, of employees in one survey I looked at said that they would like to be connected with their bosses on social media. That's so interesting. And I, I'll i be curious to see what Gen Z as uh, you know, yeah. they coming up in the you know next generation. I have four of those. Mm-hmm. And so I think that they would want to be more connected um, you know, with their boss and, and wanting to know what's going on as well. So that's super, super interested. So you solicited feedback from several CEOs and doing research for the book. What was kind of the most surprising uh, feedback you received from a uh, CEO? Actually, women and men, was there any difference in sort of the Definitely. Feedback? Definitely there were, there were gender differences. I think Probably the most surprising thing uh, was was not even something that came out in an interview, but in the after editing. So you know, you you interview everybody for your book, and then and then my publisher had me, uh, you know, reach out to each one of the CEOs I'd spoken to to get them to sign a release and and authorize the use of of the, their section of the book. And so when I did that, I shared with each of them you know, thanks for the conversation. Here's, here's what I wrote here. Here's what I'd like to put in the book. Can you please sign this form and send it back to me? And, you know, to, to a hundred percent, all of the male CEOs, like within, it felt like it was within seconds, maybe it was within minutes, just responded. Like they clearly couldn't have read the passage or even read the release. It was just like, like, yep. Awesome. Thanks for including me. Here you go. And all of the women to a hundred percent 
read through what I'd written, asked me to change words, um, asked me, you know, could you say this instead of that? Um, they edited a few rounds what was going to be put in the book um, for quotes from them. And so I, you know, as I was going through this, I noticed that trend and then reflected on, you know, some of the other ideas and concepts I put in the book about how, about what a burden we as women, I absolutely felt this and, and still to some extent feel it, this need to edit our and to be careful and to really make sure that we say things in in the right way, in the way that will be accepted in the workplace. And, and I sort of saw that playing out, even with all of these, you know, very strong, powerful women leaders, they were, they were, they, they felt they needed to be thoughtful, careful, like to the vocabulary word, right. About, about how they were quoted. And, um, you know, I think that there's some strength in that. I think it's important to be thoughtful about, yeah. about the words you choose and, and how you speak. But at the same time, there's a whole lot of time and effort that, gets put into that, that, you know, men are working on other things while, while we're editing ourselves. And so that came through in the process in a way that I wasn't necessarily expecting. That's so interesting. So that would definitely be me. I would be the you know, person looking <laughs> at it and, and looking mm-hmm. and not actually giving a response until I had looked through everything. But I think that that that's so interesting that so many people um, that it was so clear in, in the genders we yeah. were getting that feedback yeah. as well. So uh, so you, you also discussed new parents returning to the workforce. Mm-hmm. What do you think that looks like in this world of us all trying to figure out going back to work? And uh, what, what do you, I mean, how can management really make it easier and engage these parents more? I think there, I think there's, some good stuff that will come out of this. I I hope I'm optimistic about this. I think for one, you know, I've talked to a lot of women who had their babies during the pandemic and were working remotely and therefore returned from their maternity leave, still working remotely. And that I think what, and, and, felt really great about it. I mean, allowed them to ease back into it. It it takes out some of the some of those physical challenges. I mean, I I mean, I I, I could write a book about all of the like stresses I had in my first year back after having my baby about like, you know, pumping and traveling while pumping and all of those things. You don't, you know, when when you don't have to leave your your home for a bit longer of a stretch, I think it actually makes a really big difference in um in, you know, how you can engage more fully when you come when you come back to work. So I think that that women are positive on that. I think the other hopefully positive thing is that we've all across genders witnessed more parenting happening, you know, in the background of our Zooms over the past year. So I hope there's some more understanding or recognition that, um, you know, there there are other things going on in people's lives, but it doesn't mean that, they, that they're not going to get their work done and that they're not going to be engaged and focused. And, you know, you, you can be both a parent and a worker. Those, you know, the, those two things can be true and coexist. So I hope there's more awareness and, and recognition of all of that. Um, I think the risk, is that, you know, there's, I write about in the book, this, this thing that happens to women when they return from maternity leave, where, you know, they've been kind of written out of the story, and they've got to fight their way back in and insert themselves to get the good projects back to, you know, get included in meetings again, you know, people sort of prepare for them to be out and then they adapt and are, you know, doing, doing the work and don't necessarily prepare for them to return. 
And so I wonder about that. Will it be even harder for women to re-engage if their managers aren't watching out for that and actually thoughtfully planning for their return and reintegration and, you know, giving them their work back, their assignments back when, you know, you're not all in the same location where you can just, you know, walk into walk into a conference room or where it's very obvious if you're not yeah. being invited to a meeting. So I think that's it. for a manager of a woman returning, I think it's it's more important than ever to to fo- follow my direction from the book and really plan for her first day back, her first week back from leave uh, as a new onboarding, as a new return to work and, and make sure that you're engaging her and assume that she she wants you to bring on the work. She's not, you know, she doesn't want you to ease her into it and leave her kind of drifting. Yeah. No, I think that's great advice as well. I I frankly worry a lot about the culture of, you know, when you've got some people who are working remotely versus um, people going back into the office and, and then, you know, you layer in the coming back from maternity leave. I think people are, there's this complexity of sort of understanding if people are in the office, if they're not in the office, right? And then the opt-in, I guess, is that, you know, who ends up being, you know, the the player, right? In in that mm-hmm. in that. And I really do worry about that unless we sort of figure out exactly what that structure is. Having said that, um our company, like lots of other companies, did really well with this whole virtual world, right? And mm-hmm. so, but I think when you have a hybrid world, which I think most companies are moving into, I think yeah. it just, you know, human behavior is that it just gets more complicated, right? And I can't really envision how it's going to work exactly. And I think some people are, um, somebody was just telling me that Airbnb, I think, decided to not go back in the office until uh, 2022 uh, and till the fall of 2022, like 100%. You have to have special permission to actually even have a meeting in the office. And I thought, gosh, that's really, I wonder why a company that big is doing that. And it, it, it sort of led into this conversation that there's, you know, how do you actually manage? How do you you know, become a great boss versus an, a mediocre boss mm-hmm. when you've got some people that are, you know, within your visibility. I don't know. I'm not saying it can't be done. I think that it's complicated for managers and there definitely needs to be some teaching along the way for sure. Yeah, definitely. It definitely is going to take more deliberate action, right? You've got, they're going to, managers are going to have to be thoughtful about it. Another thing that, that, I, that I'm thinking of that that I probably hadn't thought about enough was we we struggled at my company over this past year with the blurring mm-hmm. of the work hours, you know, things kind of, um, you know, without having commutes to kind of put, you know, guardrails on the day, you know, things stretching a little longer, starting a little earlier and, or just, you know, moving throughout the day. And that's, that is hard for, that's hard for a lot of people, right? I think, I think everyone benefits from, you know, having some reliability to their day, but, you know, especially new moms, like, I mean, I still remember the stress of like, if I think that I can do a feeding at this time, it's, you know, it it gets, it, it builds up a different 
some kind of anxiety if schedules are moving and changing and, you know, you've got to adapt on the fly. So I think that just even the, the way we think about the workday has uh, gotten looser in, in perhaps not, not a healthy way for, for women. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I think everybody is, is ready to move on to this next phase, but I think it's definitely, it's got people, you know, sort of trying to figure out exactly how to not only deal with families, but also deal with how to, how to manage, how to insert yourself into this new environment too. So should definitely, definitely pick up this book. It's quite great for whether or not you're a CEO or you're uh, trying to manage people in your company. And um, and then also, if you're just really interested in being a terrific manager one day in the future, um, Kate has done such a great job of, of laying this out. And I'm so, as I mentioned, I'm so interested in presence learning too. You are um, it's terrific what you guys are doing, and and um, it's definitely helping a lot of people. So I love, I love that you're a helper, right? That that's on, on multiple levels. And um, t- where's the best place for people to pick up the book and learn more about presence learning? So presence learning, you can find us at presencelearning.com and uh, reach out whatever you need or your school district needs. The book's available on. Amazon bookshop, wherever books are sold. And you can find me at my Instagram is at CEO author mom. So if you're interested in following the happenings around the book and events, you can find me there. That's awesome. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Kate. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. Please uh, give Kate a great uh, five-star rating and download the podcast. We are here every Monday and Wednesday with very, very cool CEOs, founders, amazing books with many of these CEOs and founders. And of course, pick up a copy of my book if you have not. Uh It's called Undaunted, Overcoming Doubts and Doubters, and maybe even grab a bottle of Hint along the way too. And thank you, everybody. Have a great rest of the week, and we will hopefully get to meet you and hear from you soon. Thanks. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head-on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.